Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. The ability to never sleep, which would be really useful. I would love that. I could stay up all night long and get so much done. That'd be awesome. Dude, we could do so many podcasts. Think about if we both had that knack, work's done, not only is there sleep, we could just stay up all night recording podcasts. It's like the equivalent of getting the chip from Musk and expanding your brain capacity and your ability to get things done. Yeah, that's a deep cut. For anyone that's wondering what Steven's referring to, Elon Musk is working on it, putting a chip in your head that can allow you to communicate with people. Watch the most recent Joe Rogan podcast. It's not a deep cut. Everyone knows about it. What's up, Powder Mages? This is Steven and Josh, and we're going to be talking about the first Powder Mage book, Promise of Blood by Brian McClellan. How's it going, Josh? It's going good, Stephen. It's a good day. Good night. Fantastic. And hopefully this uh, podcast goes well. So this is the very first book published by McClellan, the first of his first trilogy. He's since written, he's written six total books in the Powder Mage universe. And Ryan and I actually just reviewed the very last book of the six. So this is kind of a blast for the past for me as I try to go back and remember the details of this very first book. But with the help of a Reddit thread and Josh, who actually just read it for the first time, I think we'll make a pretty good review out of this. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to review this book. I had been reading a lot of First Law books, and so I asked you guys for a recommendation of something that was a little bit more light, a little bit of a more fun read, I guess, which I love First Law. That's not meant to be a knock on First Law for your First Law fans out there. But I just was hoping for something a little bit more fun. And just delivered. So excited to talk about it. Yeah, so pretty high level. This is a really fast paced, pretty fun plot book. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of war and fighting. But it's not like a, a first law type feel like you were talking about. It's more like Brandon Sanderson, Wheel of Time type feel for the book, right? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say Wheel of Time. It's much more contained than like Wheel of Time is. You know, it's not as sprawling. I feel when I picture Wheel of Time, I picture the sprawling book with hundreds of viewpoints, and this is not that at all. But in terms of tone, you would say yeah. it's kind of more like that. I would say it, if you're looking for a book to compare it to, it, it's kind of like Mistborn. I would say like a smaller, more contained, and it's not. It doesn't just stay in one city, but a smaller cast of characters that is much more contained and not a ton of viewpoints, and the plot moves pretty rapidly. Mistborn's a good comparison too, because I think the setting is pretty similar to Mistborn. You have it's not steampunk, but it's kind of like this frontier. French Revolution is kind of comes to mind as a good comparison. It, it's like this uh, emerging society in modern day, like late 17, 1800s. Yeah, I would say eighteen hundreds. It, it's weird because it's like if gunpowder was relied on a lot more than electricity, because I think that there are like some mumblings about electricity in this book, if I'm not mistaken. But it's not like every it's not like electricity is like a huge deal. So it's kind of like if our world had progressed, but they relied more on gunpowder for longer and didn't really start introducing electricity. Yeah, so there are some very unique things about this book and about this series. Like you were saying, uh, gunpowder is used as the impetus for a lot of the magic, and it's like a flintlock fantasy, I think is the subgenre. So it's it's guns and it's kind of this frontier feel to it. There's a lot of fighting going on, but it's it's very much a, a niche 
type of genre, I would say. It doesn't really compare Super Bowl to anything else. I, I think Flintlock, I think that's the proper name for it. It's the first kind of Flintlock. I guess maybe Mistborn Era 2 is maybe some would consider Flintlock. I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I agree. It's a mix between a little bit of steampunk and a little bit of traditional fantasy. And I liked it. It worked for me. And Brian McClellan is a student of Brandon Sanderson. I think he was somewhat of a mentor for him. I think like he might have gone through his classes at BYU and, and like submitted the story. I, I might be just making this up. But I know there's some connection there. And you can tell that at least his magic system was very heavily influenced by Sanderson's rule-based systems. I didn't know that about him being a student of Sanderson. It shows, I think, especially in the and we'll get into this a little bit more, but there's different types of magic that are used in the book. Um, one being the gunpowder, you ingest the gunpowder, and that's what is the impetus for one type of the magic systems in this book. And that was very, very Sanderson-esque. Yeah, I think I am correct in saying that, but I'll probably go back and review that. And if I'm wrong, I'll put, I'll put that up on uh, Patreon as part of our correction videos. And that reminds me that if you like the content we're putting out, Check us out on social media at Phantology Books, on our website, www.phantologybooks.com. And hit us up on Discord. Our invites are all over the place on our website and on our socials. And if you really like the channel and want some bonus content, check out our Patreon. There's a few different benefits and some tiers there. So Phantology uh, is growing and uh, it's an exciting little community we have going. Yeah, I just, we're posting my initial reaction to, to Promise of Blood up on there later tonight so for all you patreons if you haven't checked out check that out yeah in trying to come up with some unique things to put on patreon we came up with this idea to just kind of put up like a one to two minute brief like raw reaction right after you finish the book what were your thoughts we probably censor things a little bit in these videos to try to uh, not have too hot of takes and offend anyone but the raw reactions are guaranteed to be our real uh, unabridged thoughts well yeah yeah for sure unabridged just right out there in the open. And I wouldn't say that we really censor ourselves too much. I mean, we have hot takes on here and I think that we just elaborate more and explain why we have the feelings that we have. Yeah. I know at least I try not to censor myself too much. Like if I think something stinks, I'm going to let you know, but I'm going to try to actually think about that and make sure that I have uh, some good reasons to back it up. I don't want to be just trashing on authors. Yeah, and, and I think that's just a good uh, mentality to have in life is the more you think about something, the less extreme of a take you usually come away with it, at least for me. You know, if I initially didn't like something and they think about, oh, well, why didn't I like it and what did work about it, then I usually come to more of a nuanced and more, usually more of a centered opinion about it. But that's why the raw reactions are so great because yeah. we haven't thought about it for long enough and it's just 100% spit and fire hot take. Exactly. So let's jump into some spoilers for book one of the Powder Mage trilogy. But before we do that, let's do our uh, let's let's do our content warning that we typically try to do for books. So what would you give this one, Josh? It's been a little bit since I read the first trilogy. I would say this is like a TV 14 type rating. Yeah, yeah, I'd say TV 14. There's nothing super ex explicit when it comes to uh, sex. I think that there's a little bit of language, but not a ton. They have some in-world swears. The most explicit part of the book is violence. There are like hands being chopped off, people being shot, people bleeding out. A lot of people head to the guillotine um, in the very beginning of the book, so that's not much of a spoiler. So I'd say, like a lot of fantasy books, the most explicit part about it is the violence, and there's a lot of violence on screen. 
Yeah, there's not a lot of swearing. I think they use pit as their swear word for reasons that I honestly don't remember. I think there's some kind of in-world reason. Dang, I was hoping... Yeah, it's it's funny because they keep saying, I'll send you to the pit or whatever. And I was hoping that later on there's you get a little bit more of an explanation behind that. I'm going to have to dive into this one a little bit more because I remember having the same concerns or questions about why they were using pit because in a lot of books that use in-world swears, there's a reason for it, right? Like I know in the... What's a, what's a good example? In Mistborn or Stormlight? I mean, Stormlight, they say storm it all the time, right? And and that's a swear yeah. because it reflects the harsh nature of the storms that sweep across the lands. Yeah, I mean, blood and bloody ashes from Wheel of Time. I mean, there's a, there's reasons for that. I'm, I'm blanking on the reasons I think, for that. No, I think that's just kind of a that's, generic yeah. swear as well. Yeah, dang. Wheel of Time has some weird in-world swears, man. We don't need yeah. to get too into those. Okay, okay, sorry about that. Anyway, yeah, in-world swears are present for reasons. I, I, I like in-world swears, so it works for me. Maybe because I don't love swearing in general. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good little uh, trick that Robert Jordan really popularized. So yeah, and then you said there, there's quite a bit of violence, and I think any reader of fantasy, especially someone that's going into a book with a man on the cover holding a gun on a throne, the book's called Promise of Blood. I don't think it's too much of a surprise yeah. to think that people are going to be killed here. Yeah, this book is it gets a lighter rating. I'd say it's. Um, it's appropriate for most readers that it's not going to shock you with any of the content that has in it. Okay, so we kind of talked high level about the book. Let's do some spoilers now. So there's three different viewpoints that we follow. We follow Adamant, who is a former police inspector or like a private eye type guy. And he's like on the older side of middle-aged. And then you have Tamas, who is uh, who's the general. He's kind of the main instigator of all of the action. And then you have his son, Taniel, Taniel with a T, and he has just returned from a, another military campaign, and he's a powder mage. Both Tamas and Taniel are powder mages, so they can access this unique type of magic. And Taniel's kind of a hotshot, warmongering type guy. I guess not a warmonger, but more of like a uh, like a cool, um, off on your own, I'm, I'm going to take everyone down uh, type character. Also kind of a maybe a little irresponsible or immature, but uh, but fun to follow. So those are our three viewpoints. And I guess before we get too much into the plot, Josh, uh, who are some of your favorite characters or what do you think of these three? So I thought, first of all, that the characters were the strongest part of this book. I think my favorite starting out was Adamant because he, I, I liked how his main motivation was to keep his family safe. I typically like these investigation type things where they go through and try and have to figure things out and go from clue to clue. And then Tamas, I originally like hated him because I, I guess I didn't totally understand his reasons for, for overthrowing this monarchy. Right. You don't get that until later. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, it was weird. I didn't initially know what to make of him. I thought, okay, is this just going to be just a warmongering guy that, his only motivation is to kill the previous monarchy. So I started out really liking Adamant, not liking Tamas. And Taniel, like you said, I, I was like, oh, here's a fun degree character. But I didn't really care too much about him, I guess. I just thought, okay, he's just this typical tropey type of character that kind of OP. You don't really know why. He's just good at everything. And as I read throughout the book, Adamant and Tamas switched for me. I really started to enjoy Thomas because I started to enjoy getting his backstory. 
enjoyed getting the motivations for why he did it at why he caused this coup at the beginning and adamant i just kind of started getting more and more burnt out of this mystery it started not being as compelling to me towards the later half of the book i i just started really not caring who the traitor was because the mystery kind of switched and we'll talk about that more later for at first it was the promise casimir's promise and then it was who's the traitor and so casimir's promise was more motivating for me than who the traitor was and then Taniel got progressively more interesting as his relationship with Bo got more and more developed and his relationship with Kapoor got more and more developed. So there's my word vomit on the three main viewpoint characters and how um, my preferences for the character viewpoints changed a lot throughout the book. Nice. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. I think maybe as we just go through the plot, we'll come back to some of these points that you brought up. But I'll just say that, yes, I think that Adamant's plot maybe went on a little long and the whole traitor thing, you never really, I, I was never really too compelled by that. Like, it never really seemed like the traitor was really going to do anything all that nasty. Like, we were going to be able to stop them and do. So that wasn't, I guess maybe that plot of the plot was not quite as compelling. Adamant is interesting because he's the only character that's not powered, right, other than Nyla. But he's definitely the main unpowered character. And when everyone else can do magic stuff and cool stuff, it's maybe a little hard to stick with him. Yeah, maybe. But I, I typically like following more of the boots on the ground type guy that that is watching everything going around him. And so I think it was just more, it got a little bit boring for me. The plot stopped being super compelling later on, I think is the main thing. Not really his lack of power. Okay, so let's talk beginning of the book. If you're still listening and don't want anything to be spoiled, I mean, we probably spoiled a little bit in that word vomit that Josh put out there. But here <laughs> we go with the beginning of the book. So the first uh, POV is Adamant, and he meets Tamis, learns of the coup that's happening, and is told to investigate this Cresmere's Promise thing. One of the privileged that Tamis killed uh, said that you can't break Cresmere's Promise, and Tamis needs to know what this means. So Tamis, then you see him kind of finishing off this coup. He sentences the king to death. And Taniel then returns from Fatrasta. Fatrasta is a nation from the other side of the ocean that is going to be important later on, but in this book at least is just kind of a place. And he's come in with Kapol, who is his companion that can't talk. She's mute. And she's from Dionys, who, which is another place which is not important in this book. But I think McClellan does do a really good job of expanding the world progressively from book to book. You also get Olam and Nyla, two side characters, and then Adamant sends his family away because he knows he's getting involved in something deep, but he notices someone kind of watching his house as he does it. So this is concerning. And Tamis goes and meets with the co-conspirators who are Rickard Tumblr, who is like the, the union boss type guy. You have Charlemont, who's the archdiocese, the leader of the church. Lady Winchislav, who's the mercenary uh, owner of the Wings of Adam mercenary group. And you have the eunuch from the proprietor. The proprietor is like the underground mob boss type guy. And then finally, you have Prime Lector, the chancellor of the university. And these guys are going to be important because, like Josh said, Adamant eventually ends up investigating all of them to find out who the traitor is. And then at the end of this kind of first part, we have this French Revolution-esque sequence of 
executions of the nobility, and then there are riots in the street as all of the, the people kind of learn of this coup that's happened in the middle of the night. So that's a big introduction, but I really liked how we got right into the action, learned who the characters are, and you have a mystery right away. It's very compelling, right? Yeah, super compelling. It immediately felt like you were just in in the thick of things. It did a good job of establishing the tone and the setting of the, st- of the city that is in chaos, kind of trying to contain this chaos that this coup is going to ignite. And I really liked it. I thought that um, it's hard to grip readers at the beginning of stories. And sometimes something like this, where you're just put in the middle of this coup could come off as a little bit, not tropey, that's not the right word, but a little bit try hard, I guess. Like it's been, it's been done, right? Like a lot of books start with action right at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. But I thought that this one worked because it was from the eyes of an investigator. It it had its own little twist on that. It was, okay, here's this investigator that might not be super supportive of what went on. You don't really know his political leanings, but he's going to get the job done and he's going to figure out what this mystery is going on with this mystery that is related to this coup that just happened. So I thought that that was a cool way to do it and you see everything through his eyes, I enjoyed that. And there are a lot of different people and places being introduced, but I felt like it was maybe just the right amount, right? Like enough where it was compelling, where you're like, oh, what's this place? Who's this guy? But not too much where you're like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Kind of like you might get in a Malazan book, which is hard for some readers. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's um, It keeps itself contained while still feeling grand. Nice. Yeah, nice summation there. So the next kind of thing that happens here, and I guess before we talk too much further into the plot, let's recap the magic system. The magic system is definitely one of the cooler parts of this book and this series. So there are several types of magic users. The main ones in this book are your powder mages, your privileged, and you have knacked, which are kind of, they don't really use magic as much as they just kind of have like one specific talent. Yeah, I think that's a really cool... I really like the Knack. I think that's a that's a cool idea for this book. The Knack are kind of like the Mistborns. Well, not the Mistborn, but... The Mistings? Yeah, the, the people in Mistborn, the Mistings, that can only use one only use one of the metals, but sometimes it's not all that useful. Well, yeah, I, I agree with that, but I think it's even... It allows uh, Brad McClellan to be a little bit even more creative than that because the Mistings are still following the, these rules of this hard magic system, whereas the Knacks can really just have whatever skill... Brad McClellan wants to give them, which I think allows for a lot of fun opportunities. Like there's the uh, there's a guy that can pick locks really well. That's a cool knack to have. And the cool thing about knacks is they still have that third eye, right? Right. They can still see into the elts and, and see magic. And the main act you see is Olam, who has the ability to never sleep, which would be really useful. I would love that. I could stay up all night long and get so much done. That'd be awesome. Dude, we could do so many podcasts. Think about if we both had that knack. Work's done, families are asleep, we could just stay up all night recording podcasts. It's like the equivalent of getting the chip from Musk and expanding your brain capacity and your ability to get things done. Man, that's a deep cut. For anyone that's wondering what Steven's referring to, Elon Musk is working on it, putting a chip in your head that can allow you to communicate with people. Watch the most recent Joe Rogan podcast. It's not a deep cut. Everyone knows about it. Well, the, not the most recent podcast of uh, Elon Musk on Joe Rogan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so in this magic system, you have, I like it because you have 
kind of two spectrums or, or two ends of the spectrum between hard magic and soft magic. So do you know what bone eyes are yet, by the way, in this book? If we are supposed to, I missed it. Do you know what Capole is doing? What her magic is at all? She uses she uses voodoo like dolls to mess with people. Yeah. So that magic is that's pretty much the most explanation you're gonna get. You'll see more of it throughout. Well, and I know I know she's able to like put a shield around uh, Daniel and protect him too. Right. So that kind of magic, as well as the privileged magic, is not ever super explicitly described. Like the privileged can access the else and use elements to do magic, but it's not nearly as hard as the powder mage magic, where they have you know they ingest the powder that's like their mana, and then they can use that to explode powder kegs and uh, Taniel can use it to deflect bullets in midair and that's why he's called Taniel two shot because he once took out two different privileged at the same time by curving his bullets so the magic is is really cool and there's a lot of variability to it that Brian McClellan puts into his uh, books really well and really expands what he can do and I really like that combination of hard and soft magic it's something that like Wheel of Time does well with uh having weaving be a little bit harder magic and then the world of dreams being a little softer magic. I think that they combine that Brian McClellan does a really good job of combining a hard and soft magic system in these books. The only thing I'd say is that it seems like the privileged should just be able to destroy uh, powder mages. The the amount of damage they're able to do, they like take down like whole city blocks by like waving thing with their hands. But they're they're just glass cannons, right? They can be easily taken down by a bullet. Yeah, yeah. And that's they don't yeah. they don't know who a powder mage is. So any yeah. dude with with a gun and powder powers can take him down. That's true, and and it does do a good job of showing. Like you think, well, like if you were to think about Harry Potter, like you could just go walk up to Harry and like shoot him with a bullet, or like Voldemort and shoot him with a bullet. You know, like you have that whole typical uh, fantasy cliche, and so this does do a good job of showing. We have these super powerful privileged, but they are still vulnerable to bullets. And especially, apparently, Daniel is like shooting people from like miles away with the little musket. Yeah, Daniel has probably never missed a shot in his life. So anyway, I thought that, that was a cool interaction between those two magic systems. And Brian McClellan did a good job of mixing them together in this book. For sure, I think, besides the characters, that was one of the best parts of the book for me. And I guess the other thing about Hunter Mages is once they ingest powder, they go into this powder trance and they get super powerful. So not only can they shoot well, they can also run around and inflict a lot of damage with swords and whatnot. And it also acts as kind of a drug for them. Taniel is, uh, is addicted or at least dependent on this the gunpowder throughout the book. And so that's also a pretty compelling uh, part of the magic. Right, yeah. This dude is pretty much in a powder trance forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the plot continues as Adamant starts to look for clues on this promise, this promise of Crestomere's. But he goes to the university and the books are all blacked out. And obviously someone has been here already. Taniel discovers the army coming in. These are like the last of the loyalist people that are not happy about the coup happening. And he meets up with Julene, who is another privilege that's, I guess, to help them. And Tamis then gets into a standoff with the loyalists that are coming in. Adamant hires a boxer named Sue Smith to help him uh, be like his, his enforcement as he goes forth in his, in, in his investigation, a good move on his part. Yeah. We meet uh, we meet Mihaly, 
who is this crazy chef guy. I think he's my favorite. The best part of the book. Character. The best part of the book. Yeah. Forget what it's about characters and magic. Mahali is the best part of the book. Yeah. He, he's awesome. He always, he adds a lot of humor to the story that honestly I was missing in the gods of blood and powder trilogy. That was my, one of my complaints. If you listen to that podcast that I did with Ryan, I didn't think there was enough humor, but there is now that I think about this book in this trilogy, there is a lot of humor. I don't know why he went away from that because uh, Mahali is awesome. Yeah, he's awesome. And and Daniel, I think, is pretty funny, too, sometimes. But yeah, that's what I, I enjoyed that about this book, this lighter atmosphere, despite all this craziness. So that's disappointing to hear you say that. Yeah, I'm honestly kind of confused. Maybe Brian McClellan can, uh, can come on the podcast sometime and explain uh, what he was thinking there. Yeah, I mean... Since 2013, there has been an uptick in like the whole wanting to be grimdark. So maybe he was trying to lean into that a little bit more. His his second series is not grimdark. It's not quite as fast paced. It's much more into uh, the intrigue and it's more of a slow burn than these ones, but definitely not grimdark. So then the last thing that kind of happens in this section is Adamant gets blackmailed by this dude called Lord Vitas, and he wants Adamant to spy on Tamis. And he's kidnapped his family and he sends him his son's finger in a box, which is probably one of the darker things that happens in the book. So Adamant is now uh, has some conflicting loyalties and is going to have to kind of walk a razor's edge. So this next section, Josh, anything kind of stand out from those events? Well, the introduction of Lord Vitas, I think it was a cool way to introduce this guy that is pretty evil. Like he doesn't really have any redeeming qualities about him. He's just out there to be the enforcer of this greater power that is kept kind of mysterious throughout this whole book. And I thought that was a cool introduction. And every time he was on the page, he really stood out as being, as giving you the chills kind of like you, you knew that he could just completely snap and kill you or kill a kid or whatever. I, I got that feeling of, this guy is not a good guy and you do not want to mess with him. He is capable of some bad, bad stuff. Definitely. I'm trying to think of a good comparison for him. Just uh. Yeah, yeah. What's the character in First Law that is the representative uh, of Valen Bolt? You're talking about uh, Yoru Sulphur? Yeah. I don't know if he was quite as, as just pure evil. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. That's the closest I could think of, though. Yeah, I don't have a great comparison, but he's definitely evil. So... Going into kind of this next session, a section, we get a resolution for the standoff that's happening with the loyalists. So there's a truce that's happening. There's some bargaining, but then the loyalists attack and or, or the royalists attack and uh, Tamis's forces are able to win. There's a bit of a subplot with Nyla and like the last surviving heir of the royalty, but not super important to be honest. We'll kind of skim over that. Adamant learns that Bobador who is an old friend, uh, almost a brother, to Taniel and Vlora. I guess Vlora is not a character we talked about, but she is uh, Taniel's old love interest that has cheated on him due to some bad circumstances and is now kind of disgraced and has come on uh, some hard times. But she's another Powder Mage character that's in this series. She's much more prominent in the next trilogy. But uh, we've learned that Bo is part of Kresimir's promise. So the idea is that if the royal line ends through violence, Kresimir, who is like the head god, is going to come down and just wreck havoc. So this is bad because Tamis has just ended a royal line 
in one of the kingdoms that Cressamere has sworn to protect. So this now becomes kind of like the main plot that we have to stop because Taniel is trying to stop Cressamere from being summoned as well. And the whole idea of the gods are a bit nebulous. And I'm guessing, Josh, by the end of this book, you still don't really have a great idea for what's actually going on here with the the whole theology and the gods. Yeah, I, I did like it, though, because it introduced that there is this lore behind, like there's this family of gods. It kind of seemed like a Norse type thing where um, each one of the gods had like a, and I could be way off base, but this is what it seemed like to me, where each one of the gods had, was like the god of, it seems like Kresmir might have been like the god of war, and then Mahal, Mahalil. I mean, Adam, Adam. Right. Yeah, it was like the god of uh, cooking, or the patron god of chefs is how he's referred to. And then it seems like there could be a god of kind of like Norse mythology, where there's a god for a lot of different things, right? Yeah, so the gods are really interesting, and I don't want to say too much, obviously, because you haven't read any further than this book, and we're not doing any more spoilers. But obviously a huge plot point to continue to watch. You also have the uh, Predii, or Predi, I'm not sure how to yeah. pronounce that. So I was kind of confused by that. Were they just like a super strong privileged? Yeah, they're like the original privileged is the idea. Okay, that makes sense. I was always, I don't know if I just missed that explanation in the book, but that makes sense. Yeah, they're super strong. They're the originals. They're much harder to kill than your typical privilege. And several of the characters are in fact masquerading because yeah. they are pretty and they're influencing things. So it's like, oh, this guy's a pretty, oh, this guy is, oh, this guy is, there's a lot of them. Yeah, especially towards the end of the book. And Anyway, we can get to the end of the book later, but yeah. That's one of the issues where I had with it. Yeah, so Julene is the main one that is causing some problems for Taniel. And at this point, Kez has started to war with Adro. Do you remember the exact reason why they start fighting? Is it just because of the coup? Yeah, well, I think that they were, that Adro was indebted to them a lot and like that they weren't going to be able to pay up on their debts. And that I think Adro kind of declared war on Kez almost with the coup and with Tamas taking charge because Tamas, you know, had bad feelings towards Kez. So I think it was just hinted at that there was going to be war the entire time. Yes, seems inevitable. And now we finally get to it. And like you said, Tamas's backstory was his wife was killed. Taniel's mother was killed by the Kez. And I'm not sure if it actually gives you the whole story in this book. So I don't want to spoil too much, but that is the backdrop for the conflict with Kez and the reason why Tamas hates them so much, understandable, and like you said, probably some of the reason why you softened on your uh, original dislike of Tamis. Yeah. So Taniel's told to go kill Bo, because Bo has this compulsion to kill Tamis, because he was the one who killed the royal lion, because of the promise, but Taniel can't, because him and Bo are basically brothers, so rather than kill Tamis, they join up to fight Julene, who has joined up with the Kez to go try to summon Kresimir at the top of this mountain at this, I think it's like a volcano. There's like a caldera at the top and Kresimir is going to descend here if they are able to reach it and do the magic thing in time. But Taniel and Bo need to stop the magic thing is pretty much the plot at this point, right? Okay, so here's where the first major demerits of the book for me come along is I wanted more of the conflict between Taniel deciding and not deciding to kill Bo. Because it was just kind of like he cited it and then he was like, ah, I can't do it. And then just went and joined Bo. And then it just kind of felt like, oh, well, that whole mission was just to get him and Bo together so they can go fight the people that are going to do the thing. And 
I didn't love that because it felt like you had this whole reason for him going there. And then the whole reason was actually just so they could get together and go fight. So you think the whole Kresimir's Promise thing was just a huge red herring plot device? Well, not even the Kresimir's Promise, because I do like the fact that there's this uh, there's this god that would take revenge on anybody that destroyed the royal line. I, I think that's cool. But the fact that it was it boiled down to just getting Taniel and Bo together seemed a little bit pointless to me. And it seemed like here it could have been like a really cool ethical dilemma. Do I uh, am I loyal to my friend or to my king? And so it dealt with that a little bit, but it really just threw it all away and said, no, we're just going to go and hang out and do, do cool things together. And I feel like that could have been, even if the same things, even if they would have gotten to the same point, it could have just been handled in a more compelling way than, oh, he just went on this little journey and now he's with his buddy. Yeah, I think you don't have enough of Taniel's backstory yet, because honestly, based off what I know about Taniel, there was like never any chance that he was really going to kill Bo. I don't know. I didn't actually think he was going to kill Bo, but I don't know. If it could have been like Bo like prevented, I don't know. I don't know how it could have been done. I'm not the author. It's not my job to come up with these things, but I think that it could have been done in a better way where his little being sent off by his dad to kill his best friend wasn't just an excuse for him and his best friend to meet up. Yeah, I think maybe the plot moves a little too fast. Sometimes it's incredibly fast moving, and sometimes it just doesn't have enough space to explain itself. Yeah, it just felt like, oh, we need this piece to go here. Okay, uh, go there for this reason. That doesn't really matter. But I think as the series goes on, you do get more backstory. You get the characters fleshed out a bit more. So some of these decisions do make sense. But yeah, like you say, maybe it's not always explained enough to your liking. It, it, it feels like a, a piece being moved rather than a puzzle being fit together. Fair enough. So the war with Kez has begun. There's a lot of fighting with uh, with Taniel who's kind of leading this, this repulsion of the Kez who are trying to fight their way to the top of the mountain. At the same time, Tamis is tricked and captured during a hunt that's happening. He's captured by Nixlos, I think is how you say his name. He's, he's like the head privileged for the Kez. And these guys have a pretty bad history because Nixlos was involved in killing Tamis's wife. And Tamis has a gold star placed in his leg, which cures him of his powder mage abilities, but really means he can't use his powers. That's kind of a joke, like, oh, you're cured, you're not a powder mage anymore, because privilege obviously hate powder mages. So Tamis is in bad shape. Taniel's in kind of bad shape as he fights off the Kez, and Adamant is in bad shape as he tries to investigate and find out who this traitor is that is leaking information about Tamis, and he's got Lord Vetus kind of bearing down on his family, so all of our heroes, our, our point of view characters, have some rough times here in the middle of the book. Yeah, okay, so I think my favorite scene in the entire book was the conversation between Tamis and... Um, Nick Sloss. Yeah, I really liked when Tamis was like, well, did you enjoy it? And he's like, no, he's like, no. But like that, do you remember that conversation? You probably don't because it's been so long. I don't. He basically gets him to admit that he kind of enjoyed killing his wife and destroying his life. And he, he started out, Nick's last started out as being, he, he just wanted to think of himself as an aloof person that was just doing his job. But then Thomas really breaks him down and he's like, no, you're human. You're enjoying doing this to me because you hate me. This is giving you joy. Um, the other reason why I liked it, and I wish we would have gotten more of this, is you get the impression that Kez is almost a more fundamentalist nation is what I was was claiming from it and that it almost seems like 
powder mages like aren't allowed in Kes, right? Or that they try and root them out or that they're seen as kind of being not evil, but cursed almost. Not a hundred percent sure on that, but I'm going to say, yeah, I don't think okay. there are any powder mages. In- so it seems like I, I kind of wanted more of that of there is this economic conflict between these two countries, but there's also this conflict of Kes being a more fundamentalist nation that sees the fact that, that Adro has let powder mages have so much influence as being kind of an abomination that they want to scourge off the land. And I might be reading into that, but that's that's compelling to me, and I hope that there's more of that. My take on that is I think he does, Brian McClellan does a much better job with nation conflicts in his second trilogy, and the first trilogy really shines in terms of the character conflicts. So take that for what you will. But yeah, the conflict with Kez is compelling and it's going to continue to be a thing um as we get into kind of the latter stages of the book temis is rescued by olam his bodyguard that doesn't sleep and mahali his cook slash god and his legs operated on they pull the star out he can do magic again but no one knows he keeps it secret important for later there's a truce with kez that happens on taniel's side but really all it is is julian and co trying to get up to the top of the caldera to the top of the mountain and summon Kresimir. And then Adamant finally realizes that Charlemagne is the traitor. So this is like the archdiocese, like the head of the, the church. And Adamant has like gone down different trails for all these different co-conspirators, co-conspirators. And Josh, I think this is where you said you kind of lost a little bit of interest because maybe you just went on a little long. Yeah. I was just like, Oh, now he's going to go talk to Rickard. Now he's going to go talk to this person. Now he's going to, church and tour the church and see all how the church is super hypocritical and da 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 i just didn't really care who the traitor was i was like oh it could be any of them and speaking of the church how the church is hypocritical here's another good example in the most recent episode that josh and i did we covered his dark materials and i talked about how churches being hypocritical and evil is a theme in other fantasy books here's another great example so critics of his dark materials don't at me but i think that fantasy churches being evil is not is not unique to his dark materials even though there are some other issues because it's a ya book but yeah, we don't need to yeah. go into that yeah and we and we talked about this on discord how we were talking about it on discord how even though like brandon sanderson is uh religious he doesn't make his religious characters be straw men where or his anti-religious characters or his agnostic characters be straw men where the religious characters just kind of come in and easily defeat their points like they're well thought out characters and I think that this book does a good job of having the religion. I don't even know if it's the religion, but the church, this this religious influence, um, hypocritical on this kind of cesspool of debauchery. Yeah, you really don't get too many details into the actual church, do you? It's just kind of, this is yeah. the church and they're bad. Yeah, yeah. And the leaders are bad. The leaders are bad, yeah. And And you're told, not shown all that much, that, oh, the church has a lot of influence. And if you... Uh, get on the batch at the church, then your coup is going to be over and we'll put up whoever we want to. That's kind of hint to that. Okay. And in the final stages of the action, we now have Adam revealed to be a god. Really, he is, in fact, Adam. Like we knew all along, this dude, we obviously knew that there was something going on with him. He always said that he was Adam. No one ever believed him for whatever reason, but he totally is. Wait, real, real fast. My favorite scene with Adam was... When uh, there's some emissary from the church that came in to arrest him and he like draws his sword and he takes out a ladle from the soup and like carries the sword thrust and knocks him over the, 
the chair or something and takes him out. I love that scene. Might be another one of my favorite scenes in the book. Yeah, he's awesome. I mean, I, I really wish that there's a little more of this in the second trilogy, kind of like I said. But uh, we also realize that Prime Lecter, who is the Chancellor, is another Predi. And now Taniel is racing to the top of the mountain to stop the summoning of Kresimir. Meanwhile, Tamis, and this is kind of like a bit of an avalanche of, of conclusion that's happening all at the same time with five different characters. And kind of a literal avalanche, but... Yeah, that's going to happen at the very end. But Tamis goes to see Charlemont. That goes poorly because Nixloss and the Kez arrive in time. But they don't realize that Tamis can actually Powder Mage because he, they don't realize that they took he took the metal or the Golden Star out of his leg. So that he turns the tables there. Adamant arrives just in time. They get Charlemagne, but Nixloss escapes, even though both of his hands have been shot up. So he's not going to be able to do magic any longer. And Vitas has also escaped. And we've learned that he now has another master, maybe even more sinister. So that's going to happen in the next books. And finally, Taniel is tricked by his companion, the, the dude that's helping him get up to the top. But luckily, Capol arrives in time, does a bunch of sorcery, saves the day. Cressamir is still summoned, but Taniel and Capol are not killed. Like, they were looking to be in really bad straits with Julene having them, um, having a drop on them. But Taniel is able to shoot Cressamir twice, I think once in the eye and once in the chest. But we don't know what happens. This is an unresolved plot point at this point. We do know that the palace thing that they're up on top of crumbles and Capol and Taniel are seriously injured. They're in comas at the very end in the epilogue and Tamis and co are lining up to take out the Kez plus Kresmir, who is on their side and probably not dead. Yeah, that's a great summary of the conclusion. It did a good job of wrapping everything up and, and it kept me reading, kept me engaged. And, but there was no huge like reveals, you know, it wasn't like, here's this, thing that's going to change the way that you thought about the story up until this point. That's how I typically like my ending, endings of books to go. And there wasn't any of that, but it was exciting. It was satisfying. And it was, I would say, like a 6.5 out of 10 ending for me. The ending or the entire book? The ending. Like the ending. Maybe 6.5 or 7 out of 10. Okay. I mean, I thought the ending was was pretty good from what I remember. The, all of the characters have some nice arcs. There are some nice misdirections. Like, Capol comes in to save the day. Tamas has done some smart stuff and not told anyone that he's actually healed. So I, I thought there was some good misdirection. Yeah, but all, well, the Capol stuff was really good. I thought that the Tamas stuff was, it, it resolved an issue that had only been an issue for like 50 pages or whatever. If that had happened in the middle of the book, it wouldn't have been crazy. It would have just been like, oh, that, that happened. You know what I mean? I think overall, I would say this book did a really good job of introducing a brand new world starting yeah. things off with a bang and putting the pieces on the board for the remainder of the series, because now we have the battle lines drawn. We kind of yeah. know what the stakes are. We know what each side can do. And it's pretty, I mean, you're looking forward to the next books, right? Because yeah. you're promised a lot more action and resolution to some of these larger conflicts. Yeah. So uh, despite the ending being a 6.5 out of 10, I guess I'll stick with, I thought that the entire book was probably like a 7.5 out of 10. I really like the book. I like the characters a ton. And I think that the ending of the book um, was lower just because I think my main issue was a lack of a super, super amazing plot. It was more just people moving from places to places. And so when you get that, 
you're typically going to not be able to put in as an impactful of an end. But the character arcs were really good. Excited to read the next books. And for a fir- and the other thing is, this is the first, this is his debut book, right? Brian McClellan's debut book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for a debut book, I mean, knocked out of the park. Great. Can't say enough good things about a debut book like this. Yeah, and I would say his writing continues to get better. I thought the second trilogy was better than the first. I liked the first trilogy quite a bit. And he said he's done with Powder Mage books after six and a bunch of short stories. And he's writing another series that I don't know anything about, really. But that's supposed to come out, I think, in 2022. So I'm guessing he's doing a lot of writing right now. Cool. So I have a worst of the best. And it might be it might have been too long for you. But my worst of the best was this battle between Taniel and the Kez summoning Krasmir. It was cool. Like you have these people, this kind of like little band of people that are taking on this bigger force and they're kind of up on this hill. I got this image of they're up on this hill and like shooting down at them. And I like the setting and everything a lot, but I think that Taniel just got too lucky sometimes. Like he took out one of the, one of their high privileges or something with just like a lucky shot, like didn't even know who he was shooting at. And it was like the leader of their force. And it, pretty much like caused them to be disbanded almost. So I think that was the worst of the best for me was here's this, this huge thing that I've been, that's been building, being built towards. And then Daniel just kind of gets lucky throughout it. Daniel two shot, right? He never misses a shot. I'm telling you. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's the thing. And then also with how he shoots Kresmir, I thought that was just awesome. Like he's like, I think it said like six miles away or something. And he just like keeps pushing the bullet and like uses his entire reserve to like push these two bullets into Kresmir. That was cool. And it's a good setup because he's been shot, but Bo says, Hey, gods can't die. So what's going to happen? Like what's the resolution between these two things? Right. So my worst of the best is the Kez special force guys called wardens, right? You're familiar with these guys? Yes. Yeah. So I thought there was a lot of room for the Kez to have something cool on their side, something cool and unique. And I thought the Wardens were just too bizarre. Like, what are these guys? If You yeah. do learn a little bit more about them in future books, but they just look... I envisioned such a weird combination, like such a weird creature. Like, they wear bowler hats. They're all, like, bulked up. They're kind of like intelligent coloss almost is what I'm picturing yeah. from Mistborn. I didn't really like it. I thought they were too weird. So just to give you an idea and i think this kind of backs up your point is i'm on the fandom page for promise of blood and so i went to click on the warden article and the article doesn't exist it's like a hyperlink to a page that doesn't exist the fandom's not great i was just on it earlier yeah yeah i mean so i don't know how many of the other characters or things are like that but you think that here's this really cool kind of class of i don't know if it's a different species or but this different class of being would have at least like some fan art or little summary associated with it, but not nothing. Yeah, you will learn more. And now that I think about this, I actually remember the answer to a previous question you had about Kez, but I'm not going to say any more. Maybe in the follow-up video, I'll kind of break, like break down what's actually happening here. But yeah, the Wardens are interesting. They get better in future books, or at least in this book. I just thought they were weird with their bowler hats and this kind of weird image, and it just didn't really work for me. Well... I think I, that's all I have to say about it. I got my avalanche word avalanches out of the way at the beginning, but I, I enjoyed this book. I'm excited to read the rest. Yeah, overall, very solid series. I think we've said that, and it's very unique, very niche, and I think there's room for most fantasy readers to pick this up and enjoy it. 
um, that they're very fast reads and very engaging. Yeah. And having said that, um, if you are a big fan of, of Powder Mage, come jump on our Discord. I don't think we have like a Powder Mage expert yet on our Discord. So if you consider yourself a Powder Mage expert and want to have a voice in, in our re, uh, reviews and, and my experience, at least of reading the books, then come jump on and, and lend your voice. Yeah, we got a retweet from Brian McClellan on our post about Blood of Empire, which is the last Gods of Blood and Powder review that Ryan and I did. So I think there's a fandom out there for Powder yeah. Mage that we just need to find. Yeah, so come hop on our Discord. Links are on our socials, Ventology, and come look us up. Yeah, thanks, Josh, for doing the outro there that I usually do. But yeah, check us out at uh, so Ventology. Good. No, no, I, I love that. But check <laughs> us out at Ventologybooks.com. And, uh, and we have a lot of stuff on our socials at Pentology Books, and we'd love to chat with you on Discord. So until next time, see you later, Josh. See you.